On Psalm 23, we're doing a four-week series, and every sermon in the, in the every title of the sermon in the series starts with H and P. Last week was He provides, and I do that I do that with the letters to show you guys all how intelligent I am. That's the only reason I do it. So make sure you when you leave here, you think my pastor is so smart. Uh, Psalm 23 is our memory verse. We're going to do the whole chapter, good and strong. Ready, read. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Last week, verse 1, we talked about how he provides. Today in part 2, we're going to talk about verses 2 through 3, and the title is His Peace. His Peace. Peace is the most underrated fruit of the Spirit that there is. I don't think that even half of you in this room recognize how much of a lack of peace you have in your life. You're constantly looking at the news, you're on social media, getting involved in other people's lives you don't even need to be getting involved in. There's strife going on at work, there's noises at home, the dog's barking, the kids are screaming, the husband's complaining, the dishwasher's going. There's no peace. And when you don't have peace, you don't make good decisions in life. You're all riled up by your emotions. When you don't have peace, you can't hear from God clearly. There should be so much peace in our homes that we look forward to going home every day and just walking. We should take a big exhale every time we walk into our house. Thank God I'm home, my place of peace. Peace is incredibly important in your life. Um, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus was with his disciples in a boat, and he said in verse 35, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. In other words, I'm going to take you somewhere. Follow me. Let me lead you in this direction. Within two verses, it says, a furious storm arose of hurricane proportions. They were in God's perfect will, yet they were surrounded by Hurricane Hugo, Category 5. Everything is in trouble. There's all kinds of a mess. And so they woke Jesus up from his nap. Um, you might say they woke up the Word. And in verse 38, they said, Master, I, I really think this is Peter talking because he and I are very similar. We love to exaggerate. We're about to die. We're about to die. Jesus, this is it. We're done. We're goners. And Jesus looked at the storm and said, Peace, be still, and the storm Cease. There's some things I want you to see before we get into our three points. Okay, one is this. We know that God is in control of the rainbow. We know God's in control of the sunrise, the sunset. We know God's in control of the stars that are in the sky. Did you know God's in control of the storms that are in your life? It's so difficult to remember that when we're going through a storm, that God is still in control. Another thing I want you to see is uh, Jesus did not speak about the storm. He spoke to the storm. Uh, uh, Peter, tell me how bad it is. How strong are the winds? Well, are the waves crashing onto the boat? Is the rain bad? Tell me all about your problems. Let me hear all the things that frustrate you. No, no, no. Jesus spoke directly to the storm and said, peace, be still. The other thing I want you to see is this. Peace is not the absence of storms. Peace is being close to the shepherd in the midst of the storm. 
It's not, you know, a lot of people, I know they want to switch relationships, switch jobs, switch homes. They go from this place to the next, trying to find peace. You'll never find peace without spending time with peace himself. You'll never have peace without, my, my whole goal for you in this series is not for you to change and grow and sacrifice and stretch. My goal for December is simply to influence you to spend every single day just a few minutes alone with the shepherd and let him lead you and speak to you and let him bring you his peace. Um, uh, I wanted to show you these three scriptures and, and I wanted you to think I was really smart when I show them to you. I'm not this smart, but I'm going to read them and show you how cool it is what God did. Okay, watch. Isaiah 9.6, he will be called Prince of Peace. There's Jesus. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is peace. There's the Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is a God. I didn't even realize I did that. There's the Trinity right there. Isn't that so cool? Father, Son, Holy Spirit right there. Peace is not the absence of something. It is the presence of someone. And you'll never have peace without spending time with Jesus. You'll never experience what it's like to have peace in every area of your life unless Jesus is with you. So in 1945, the United Nations, you don't put it on the screen yet, in 1945, the United Nations were formed, and um, their goal, their goal was to have peace for generations to come. Really, really good goal, peace for generations to come. The reason they wanted peace so bad is because, now you can put it on there, 3,500 years, the past 3,500 years, there's been 14,351 wars. Now, I know we're not really privy to that. We, we kind of think of America as being the whole world. The world's a lot bigger than America, just so you know. There's wars all the time you don't even know about. Of these 14,000-something wars over the past 3,500 years, 3.6 billion have died fighting, like in strife. They die with no peace. 8,000 peace treaties have been signed in the past 3,500 years. Now, peace treaty is, I want peace, you want peace. You know, let's, let's agree we're going to make a contract, a covenant. Um, United Nations filled with the most intelligent, influential, these wise, experienced people, you know. And we want peace. You understand what a peace treaty is? So here's my question. Guess how many of these 8,000 peace treaties that have been signed, guess how many have been broken? 8,000 of them. Which tells me, I don't care how smart you are, I don't care who you got involved or what you're doing, the world doesn't need peace treaties, the world needs peace himself. They need the shepherd. You'll never have it without Jesus. You can try, you can beg, you can change this and change that. If Jesus is not in your life, you'll never have peace. I have three points for you today on his peace. Point number one, they all start with the same letter. Point number one is this, rest. A state of rest. It says in Psalms 23, 2, which is what we're studying, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. A sheep who has still waters and green pastures is a sheep that is at rest. They're not worried about their job. They're not worried about tomorrow. They're not stressed out about an enemy. They have total and complete rest when they're made to just sit there with the green pastures and the still waters. How many times have you had to make your child sit down and be quiet? Like you know they're all riled up, things are, and you know the best thing for them is to say, sit down in the corner, I'm going to make you take a nap, I'm going to make you be quiet, I'm going to make you sit still. How many of y'all have done that to your husband before? I mean your children, okay. 
my, my son, um, y'all, <laughs> I have to make him, I tell him to shut up and sit down all the time. Um, my son, I have five kids, my, my second one, Zach, he, he's so intelligent. I mean, he slept through school and he makes straight A's. He's got a full scholarship, you know, in college. This is his fourth year, straight A's, just a brilliant kid. But um, when he was real little, he had these make-believe friends. And the purpose of the make-believe friend was when he did something wrong, he could blame it on them. His first make-believe friend was FFF. I don't know where he came up with the name, but FFF. And he'd do something wrong. He said, Dad, I want me. It was, it was FFF. So one day I'm riding down the bypass with Zach. He's like four or five. And I rolled down my window, and I threw FFF right out the window. <laughs> he was gone. He went to heaven that day. He went to heaven. And um, by the time we got home, he had a new friend named Bishomino. I don't know where he comes up with the names. He just does. And uh, my kids always had, I always make sure they had spotless, beautiful bedrooms, right? Matching furniture, perfect paint on the walls. They all had a scripture. They had their name in it. Zach's scripture was, no weapon formed against Zach will prosper. The rooms were always perfectly organized, neat, decorated. And I walk into Zach's room, and someone took a permanent marker and wrote his name, Zach, all across the wall. I was furious. I ran, I said, Zachary, why did you do this? And as serious as you can imagine, I mean, if there was a lie detector hooked up to him, he would have passed the lie detector. He looked right in my eyes and said, Dad, I did not do that. Bishomino wrote that on my wall. I said, Son, I am going to spank you if you don't tell me the truth. Dad, I watched Bishomino write mine. I told him not to do it. He did it anyway, Dad. I said, son, I said, you're going to sit in this corner right now. I'm going to make you be still. You got 30 minutes. He said, but Dan, I didn't do it. So I said, okay, you tell Bishomino to sit in this corner, to be still and be quiet, and you sit next to him and make sure he does not get up for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> Every five minutes, I say, Zach, what's Bishomino? He said, Bishomino's sitting right still, Dad. He's not doing nothing. He's right next to me. I'll make sure he doesn't. I had to make him sit down. You know the common denominator in everyone's life when they come to me and they say, I don't hear from God. Clearly, I got all this chaos. I don't know what to do. My emotions are riled up. They never sit down in the quietness with Jesus. They have so much noise going on in their life. The news is on in here. The dog's barking there. The dishwasher's there. They're checking their email. Their phone's buzzing. They don't ever sit in quietness and stillness. It says in Psalms 46.10, be still and know or recognize that I am God. Lower the ambient noise in your life. Get rid of some of the chaos. Do you recognize how important it is to have peace? Um, I learned this. You know, it's one thing for me to preach it to you. It's another thing whenever I teach it to you and you apply it and it actually changes your life and you know it works. I, I, I learned this and I studied it, but I never really got it until um, when I first started pastoring. I was 26 and I didn't have an office. We were meeting at the library and I had three kids. The next year I had my fourth kid, next year fifth kid. And so there was always noise in the home. There was always some kid beating up another kid, some kid bleeding, some kid screaming, the dog, everything. And I'm, I wouldn't, and I'm trying to work, and I can't. And then every day I would go take a shower, just like we all normally do. And for some reason in the shower, I started hearing God so clearly. And I got these sermon ideas, and a scripture I read earlier was coming to life. And I'd get out of the shower, and I'd start taking notes, writing it down. And I'd say, okay, okay, and what about this? And then I just, I didn't hear God. I thought, that's so weird. It took me like a year or a year and a half to recognize the reason I hear God so clearly in the shower is because there's nobody else there. There's no cell phone. There's no kids. There's no screaming. It was the still and the quietness with God. It was amazing. Change. And so now I have to do it every day. I have to do it every day. I can't get through a date without doing it. 
Another translation of Psalms 46.10 says, Be still, calm down, stop fighting, and understand that I'm... Here's my question. When is the last time you've actually been by the still waters? When is the last time you've actually got... And, 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 and your time with Jesus doesn't have to look like my time with Jesus, okay? Some of you in this room, you're so spiritual spiritual, however you want to say it, and, and you get on your knees in your closet and you pray to the Holy Ghost, and we're so proud of you for being spiritual. We'll give you a clap. That was great. But, you know, it is just as spiritual for someone to walk along the beach with Jesus. It's just as spiritual for a man to go in his garage and work on something all by himself and just meditate on a scripture that he read earlier that day. It is just as spiritual for you to put on some earbuds and you got your worship playing and you're going on a run or you're working out at the gym and you're just listening to God. And listen, when, when this happens, when you get still and you get quiet, your mind will wonder. Let me teach you something so important. Let your mind wonder and bring Jesus into that. When your mind starts to wonder about work, oh, I got stuff I got to do later today. You're trying to focus on Jesus and you're thinking... Bring Jesus into the work. Lord, I believe you're going to give me favor in that meeting. I believe you're going to open up this door. I believe if it's not from you, you won't let that deal happen. Your mind starts to worry about your kids. Bring, Lord, I know you, that you're going to surround my kids with angels. You're going to protect them. Wherever your mind, let it go. That's Jesus leading you, talking to you. You'll never hear the quietness of the Holy Spirit if you don't get quiet yourself. First Kings chapter 19, Elisha was so depressed that he wanted to die. And he was, I guess he was bipolar too, up and down, up and down. And it says in verse 10, he was in a cave and the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain. He's so excited. This is it. He's going to hear from God. Everything's going to change. His whole life's going to be better. And in verse 11 it says, and the Lord passed by. Woo! And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces. But the Lord was not in the wind. Oh, hold on. There was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, Holy Spirit fire, right? But the Lord wasn't in the fire either. By the way, this is where the band got their name, Earth, Wind, and... It's not, I don't know. But anyway, after the fire, watch this, a gentle and quiet whisper. God whispers because he's close. But you'll never hear it if you don't get still and quiet. Uh, it started off saying that he makes me lie down. He makes me lie down. And sooner or later, if you don't do it, he, he's going to make you. But it reminds me of this poem that I found years ago. It's a play off of the poem uh, Footprints in the Sand. Y'all know Footprints in the Sand, right? The skies. Well, if you don't, go to your grandma's house. And I'm sure she has a picture of it somewhere in her house. But uh, that's true. How many of y'all have a picture of that in your house? Just kidding. You're old. Okay, so the, the, the poem is, talks about this guy who's he's walking along the beach. And uh, he's like, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, And he sees this one set of footprints. And at the end of it, Jesus says, I was carrying you the whole time. Those are my footprints. I was carrying you. That's the poem, okay? Here's one I found. It says this. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen. The footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. Then some strange prints appeared. I asked the Lord, what have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat. But Lord, they are too big to be feet. He said, I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and we had to wait. You disobeyed. You wouldn't grow. The walk of faith, you did not go. For miles I carried you in my arms, but your attitude did so much harm. So I got tired and a little fed up. It was there I dragged you on your butt. Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb. So get still, get quiet, and take a stand, or be pulled with butt prints in the sand. <laughs> ah, 
some of y'all's prints are old. Okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> different than others. Okay, point number two is this, restoration. Restoration. It says in Psalms 23, verse 3, the first part says, He restores my soul. This is healing. It is wholeness. Um, has your soul ever been crushed? Has your body ever been sick? Has your mind ever been unhealthy? The good news is the good shepherd can restore every single piece of you. Um, in Luke 4.18, uh, Isaiah is, it has the most messianic scriptures of any other book in the Bible. And that's prophecies about Jesus, you know, the Messiah, and, and every prophecy was fulfilled. This isn't going to mean a lot to you, but it means so much to me. In Luke 4, Jesus is quoting Isaiah, who's talking about Jesus. So he's basically saying, I'm the Messiah. 700 years ago it was written. I'm doing everything. It's just, for if you're a theologian or you love studying the Bible, it is so incredibly beautiful and brilliant that Jesus Christ is standing before people and, and he's quoting Isaiah who's talking about him. It's just a very miraculous moment. If I could see it in time, I would love to see it. But he says in Luke 4, 18, all the things God's anointed me to do. And he says this, the Lord has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. The word brokenhearted in the Greek comes from two words, suntribo and cardia. Cardia is where we get heart, of course. Suntribo means this, to shatter into pieces that are unrecoverable. Has your heart ever been shattered into pieces and it seems like it is totally unrecoverable? Jesus can recover. He's been sent to recover every single piece. Every single piece. I, there's a, so many stupid phrases out there. I heard someone talk about grief and how grief never goes away. It goes away. I heard people say, um, uh, time heals all wounds. Time heals nothing. It is time with Jesus that heals everything. So if you want restoration in your soul, you got to spend time with the shepherd. Now, Jesus is saying this in Luke 14 because some Pharisees are getting mad that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath because they thought it was work. It is not work for Jesus to heal. It is like you breathing. Um, it is not work. It, it, just, as, just as you are, it can blink your eyes, that's as easy as this for Jesus to heal. It is natural for Jesus to be supernatural. It is normal for him to do supernatural things. I really need you to see how amazing he is and how easily he can heal and he can restore. So he's having this conversation with the Pharisees, and here's what Jesus goes into in Matthew 12, 11 through 13. He says this, um, if you had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Then Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, hold out your hand. The man did, and it was restored. Here's why I love this. If you've fallen into a pit today, an unforeseen circumstance, the shepherd has been sent by God to pull you out. If you've been thrown into a pit and someone else did it to you, the shepherd has been sent to pull you out. If you dug the pit yourself and put yourself in the pit, the shepherd has been sent to pull you out. That's amazing to me. Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power, and Jesus went everywhere doing good, and healing, what's that word? All. Everybody say all. all. Healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Every person who met with Jesus received a healing. Lepers were cleansed. Prostitutes were forgiven. Criminals were liberated. Demon-possessed were set free. The lame walked. The blind could see. The lost were saved. And the only way to miss out on restoration is by not meeting with the shepherd. 
That's the only way. Um, there's a, a, a true story, a testimony of a young man in South Korea uh, many, many years ago, about 60 plus years ago, and uh, he was dying of tuberculosis. One of his lungs had already collapsed, and his other lung was about to collapse, and he's laying in his bed at home in so much pain, he's just waiting to die. He's just waiting to die as quick as he possibly can. He began to call out to all these different gods. He called out to Buddha for help, and nothing happened. He called out to Muhammad, and nothing happened. He just calling out one after the other, nothing happened. Finally, in the greatest desperation you could imagine, he screamed at the top of his lungs in pain, if there's any God up there anywhere, don't heal me, just help me die. He was so full of fear. He had no faith. He had no idea about Jesus, nothing. At the exact same time he was doing that, there was a young college student who was walking through the neighborhood. She felt what she called this unexplainable love drawing her toward his home. She went to the door, not knowing what to do. She knocked on it. The boy's mom answered the door, and the college student said, I know this sounds really odd. You're going to think I'm, I'm really, really weird. Um, is there anything I can pray with you about today? The mom started crying. She grabbed the girl by the arm, ran her through the house into the son's bedroom. The girl prayed for the boy, and that day, not only was he healed, but he gave his life to Jesus. He died last year at 85 years old. His name is David Yonggi Cho, and he started and pastored the world's largest Christian church ever with over one million church members. His church was so big and he was so anointed in his life that at one point they had to take numbers and you were only allowed to attend church once a month. They had six services a day, six days a week. So many people, you were only, if you tried to sneak into church and it wasn't your time and you didn't have a number, you wouldn't be able to come for the next few months. Somebody else got your number. That's how anointed he was. And listen, it all came from a day when he knew nothing, didn't have anything, no fear, and yet the good shepherd healed him. So what are the qualifications for receiving a miracle? Now, if we, if we wrote it out and we looked at the Bible, I'm sure I could say things like obedience, and that would be a great sermon I could preach on that, or um, believing, or praying, you know, all that's good stuff. But then what, 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 what did Saul do to deserve the miracle to be turned into Paul and write half the New Testament? He was murdering Christians. Murdering Christians, and Jesus healed him. What did Lazarus do? He was dead. What did he say to be healed? What about the, the, the woman caught in the act of adultery in that day, the greatest miracle she could ever ask for? What did she do? So then what are the qualifications? I'm going to read you a, a, a scripture and then I'm going to tell you. Mark 2.17, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, it's the sick. I did not come to call the righteous, I came to call the sinners. The common denominator in each person's life who's received healing from Jesus is this. They were sick. In other words, you in this room, y'all are bad enough for Jesus to save you. And you're sick enough for Jesus to heal you. That's how good he is. Point number three for your notes is this, righteousness. Psalms 23.3, the second part says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. A righteousness is the state of or the position of being in right standing with God. It is not the state of doing right. Okay, I just really need you to get this. Nothing good you do can get you to heaven. It is 100% a gift. 
You are not righteous because of anything you've done or ever will do. You're righteous because of what Jesus did. He makes you righteous. It's, it's, it was his perfect performance that got you righteousness. Now, let me give you an example. Um, in America, if you're married or if you have kids, you get a tax break, right? And listen, you, you can have a horrible marriage. Your children can be, you know, get in trouble all the time. It doesn't matter. If you have that relationship, you get this benefit. Do you understand that? If you have a relationship with Jesus, the benefit, one of them is this, you're in right standing with God. Just by being in relationship with him because of what he did, you're in right standing with God. And nothing you do can change that, that, that position. Now, it's very important you understand this. Sin does not affect God's relationship toward you. When you sin as a believer in relationship with Jesus, it does not affect how God sees you. It does not affect how much he wants to bless you. It does not affect his love for you. None of that is affected when you sin. You can do the most horrible sin in the world. It doesn't affect God's relationship toward you. But it does affect your relationship toward him. It does affect how you see him. It does affect how you serve him. It does affect how you pray and all that stuff. That is why he made us righteous, but he also wants to lead us in paths of righteousness so we're not weighed down by mistakes and sins. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. Um, 90% of the Bible is who we are apart from Jesus Christ. And I need to somehow prove to you how amazing it is that you're righteous because of Jesus so that you will look forward to spending time with him every day no matter what you're doing or what you've done. Because you know we do bad things. I don't want to spend time with Jesus today. Da, 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 da. Okay. I need you to be so grateful for what he did. So understand the Bible is mainly about how horrible we are apart from Jesus. Right? We love to talk about who we are through Christ. That's 10%. Uh, I can do all things through Christ. Um, I'm more than a conqueror. I'm the apple of God's eye. Great, 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 great. It's all because of Jesus, not because of you. Okay? 90% of the Bible is that we suck and he's amazing. That's what it is. Okay? That was the Sakasti translation. Um, <laughs> Habakkuk 1.13 says that his eyes are so pure they couldn't even look at us. He is so perfect he can't even look at imperfection. Now, you see a little baby, and you think, oh, that baby's so cute. God couldn't even look at it. And you say, well, the baby hadn't done anything wrong. There's sin in our blood. We are born into sin. You know, people love to argue, well, I was born this way. You're right. We were all born that way. We were born selfish. We were born prideful. We were born greed. And Jesus, born again, changes that. So, yeah, you were born that way. I'll argue that with you. That's fine. We were so, something had to be done just so God could look at you. That's how sinful we are apart from Jesus. Now, before I get into some good stuff, I, I want to show you, um, there's two lies that Christians believe. One is that they're better than everybody else. You know, some of you look around and think, well, I didn't do what they did, and da, da, da. Okay, the other lie is, I'm worse than everybody else. Well, they're so much more spiritual than me. Okay, none of that's true. We're all in the same boat. We all need the same amount of grace every day. But... I like to debate and argue a little bit, so I put some, I'm about to put some sins on the screen that I know y'all have committed because I have your Facebook page. And so I've seen the stuff that y'all do, and so I looked on your Facebook, your social, and, this, and this is what I got from it, okay? I want you to you choose which category you're in. I just want to go over some of them. If you have unforgiveness in your heart, the Bible says you're a murderer. So you can judge a murderer, but you need to know biblically if you're unforgiveness, you're the same thing. Um, lust, same as adultery. Negative, gossip, profanity, same thing. Hatred, racism, evil thoughts, all together. Selfishness, pride, greed, gluttony. Uh, pornography is in the same category as rape and homosexuality. 
Non-tithers are stealing from God, lying, coveting, disobedience, and all your little secret sins that nobody knows about except for you. Okay. What? Now, now, let me say this. Are you somewhere up here on this screen? Yes. I know you. I know you are. I've seen some of y'all at Walmart on 501, and you didn't think I was looking at you. I saw what you were doing. Everyone up here on the screen, right? Every single one of you up here on the screen. So I know you know you're a sinner. I know you know you're a sinner. But sometimes with, when, with close friends, we like to debate about certain things, and you'll never win a debate with me on the Bible, so don't even try. But sometimes they try. And one time I had this friend who's debating with me, well, why is it a sin if, if the world says it's okay? For instance, homosexuality. You know, why, why is that a sin? Why can't they just love each other? And, and, and I could prove it psychologically, but, but basically theologically, because the Bible says so. That's just as basically it. The Bible says so. doesn't matter what culture says. Every culture is different. In some cultures, um, they like to bake their neighbors a pie. In some cultures, they like to bake their neighbors. You know, so it's just different things. So, so every culture is different. So you can't go by culture. But because some of you think this, well, you know, I'm not that bad of a person because I don't hurt people and blah, blah, blah. So I wanted to put some cultural illegal things on the screen. And I want, as I read them, for you to think in your mind, have I done any of these things but not gotten caught? See, just because you didn't get caught doesn't mean it's not wrong. So I'm going to go through some of them. And, and, and I know you do these things, but I want you to think, if you got caught for everything you've done wrong just in our culture, would you be in church or would you be in prison right now? Okay, let's look and see. Um, how many times have you broken the speed limit and not gotten caught? On the way to church because you're such a good Christian. Failed to stop at stop signs. Not use your blinker. This is really the list of my past week. If you ever want to know my life, it's just the past, actually this is the past day probably. Um, lied on your taxes, Lord forgive me. Um, just kidding. Use prescription drugs that were not prescribed to you. Yeah, some of y'all got them in your pocket right now. Opened up somebody else's mail. That's a federal offense. Parked illegally. Lied to police officers. I remember one time I lied to a police. I remember many times I lied to a policeman. But I remember one time specifically, um, my, we, were, we were pregnant with either Zachary or, uh, no, no, we were pregnant with Asher or Selah. Anyway, I was driving through my neighborhood at 60 miles an hour in a 15-mile-an-hour zone. And uh, y'all do the same thing. Don't lie, okay? I should have. I was going 30 miles an hour in a 25, and, and the officer pulled me over, and I was like, officer, officer, my wife's having a baby, my wife's having a baby. He's like, oh, oh, do I need to call an ambulance? I said, no, no, she's right down there. I'll take care of it. He said, okay, go, go, go. Now, I didn't lie. We were having a baby in seven months, but we were, gonna have, we were having a baby. It, the baby was coming. It just, he let me go. Okay, here's my question. What do you really deserve? Because I hate that stupid line that people say, I deserve to be happy you deserve hell. It is because of Jesus that you're not going to hell. It's because of Jesus that you can write standing with God. It's because of Jesus that God can even speak to you. Nothing you did. So if you got caught for everything you've done wrong, where would you really... You know how much grace is in your life you don't even know about? Man, if we knew all the times God spared our life even. Right? Okay, Romans 5, 17. Those who receive God's grace and free gift of righteousness, right standing with God, will reign with Christ Jesus. Listen, he couldn't look at you. Jesus died and you received him in your life. Now watch, Job 36, 7. He does not take his eyes away from you. Jesus did such a good job, God will never turn his eyes away from you. That's what a good job Jesus did 2,000 years ago. God can look at you. He can talk to you. He can live with you. He can hug you. And you get to choose if you want to meet with him every day. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ who never broke the speed limit. 
God made Christ who never said a single cuss word. God made Christ who never had a lustful thought. God made Christ who knew nothing about the things you've done, and he took all of those things that you've done in the past, the present, and even in your future, and he put them on Jesus so that you might, it's up to you if you choose it or not, become the righteousness of God. He leads us down paths of righteousness so we don't have to be weighed down with guilt and condemnation. I'll close with, um, you know, shepherds, they, they don't drive sheep like cattle. They lead sheep. They lead sheep. It says he leads us. He leads us past righteousness. I was reading about this place in Israel um, about 100 years ago or so it was, and it was this huge acres and acres and acres of the most luscious green grass you could imagine right near the water. It's just a beautiful place. And the shepherds all around would travel throughout the day and bring their sheep there to eat and to drink. And the shepherds would hang out all in this one section. They'd eat, they'd, you know, cook food, and they'd hang out, and they'd talk, and, you know, and everybody kind of bring a little picnic-type lunch, and, you know, and they'd stay there all day. And um, there could be, there could be between fifteen to 20,000 sheep there all at once. And there were probably 50 to 100 shepherds. They'd all bring their sheep. The sheep would all get all mixed together, and they'd be eating and doing their thing. When the sun started to go down, uh, due to predators and things like that, the shepherds had to take their sheep, depending on how far the walk was, and they'd have to take their sheep and lead them back home to a safe place. The way they would do it was every shepherd had a different call, had a different word, you know. Maybe one would say, you know, yeehaw, if he was from the Dukes of Hazard or what I don't know. He'd say, and all of his sheep mixed in in these 20,000 sheep, they'd all lift their head up for their shepherd. And they'd walk through and push through the crowd, and they would get to their shepherd, and they would just follow them back home. And the next shepherd would do, you know, whatever wisdom, whatever thing. And all his sheep, they'd lift their head up, they'd hear what he said, they'd go and they'd start forming their line, and they'd follow their shepherd. one after, And not a single sheep would get mixed up with another batch. There could be 15, 20,000 of them, they wouldn't get mixed up. John 10, 27 says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. So what is the key to following the shepherd down paths of righteousness? Hearing his voice. What is the key to hearing his voice? Spending every day in his presence. And you'll never get mixed up with all the rest. Amen? Okay, that's our part two. Let's go to the Lord.